Hi, I'm Joe Muggs and welcome to the Resident Advisor Exchange. Normally I'd start these by telling a DJ that I'd seen them play at so-and-so venue. This is slightly unusual in that uh, this is a man who I've taken my children to bounce on his henge twice. Yeah. Jeremy Della, uh, welcome to the Resident Advisor Studio. People listening will probably know you from uh, your film last year, which covered rave culture yeah. and looked at it through the eyes of a younger generation by showing lots of footage to um, young young students in, in London. But you've been incorporating dance music and rave culture into your work as an artist for quite some time. Where did that start? Well, that started, yes. Well, you're, you're right. The film was called Everybody in the Place and it was on TV last year. And in a way, it was just an, another extrapolation of my interest in the music, but also the culture that surrounded it and the history of the time. And that started very soon. Well, it started in the mid-90s. Because I always knew or suspected, well, you knew if you were there and you saw it, that what was going on with that, with dance music in the late 80s was a very important moment and it seemed like a very a social it seemed like a moment historically something important was happening and it's something that i was interested in exploring in a way so in 1995 or 4 i can't remember the first most of the 90s are uh, i can't really remember any years really i just remember it as a big one big sort of long timeline but i think in 95 i made a series of posters about exhibitions i'd like to see so it's like fantasy exhibitions and one of them was about acid house culture mm -hmm. memorabilia and imagery and so on from acid house and that was, maybe that was the first thing and then i did something with a brass band playing acid house music in 97 so mid 90s onwards i was thinking about it as a serious moment in british life really and acid brass took on a life of its own. That, that became a thing. It did. It separate was separate from the galleries. And well, your, quite your exhibitions. It never really went into the galleries. It was just an idea for a brass band to play acid house music to, to play the music really well because I loved the music, and I always thought the music didn't really get looked at properly because people looking at other things like the drug culture around it and people dancing and whatnot. But actually, I thought a lot of the music was amazing, and so I wanted to see if it was possible for a brass band to play that music. And I did a diagram connecting these two musical forms. And in a way, it was trying to tell a story of a country through music. It was like the history of these two musical forms actually encompassed so much history of Britain in the 20th century. So it, was, it had a serious intent, but actually it was also meant to be a very enjoyable, life-affirming uh, experience to see a brass band playing songs that you loved. And particularly the, the What Time Is Love, the KLF track and the Voodoo Ray guy called Gerald. Yes. I've heard people play them. Like. Well, they're, they're, you know, I think it's a testament to those songs, actually, because they're both very musical songs and full of great riffs, full of great melodies. So they can be translated into a brass band and a brass band can play them and feel like they're playing really good music. It's not like a novelty, even though it has a novelty aspect to it. It was always meant to make brass bands play contemporary music and feel good about it but also for people who like that music anyway, to understand that actually these are very well-made, well well-constructed songs. And so I think it worked both ways, really. Yeah, there are, there are many reasons that they, they touch people's uh, hearts and emotional responses. You know, a lot of the time people with old dance tracks tend to assume it's because of the 
memory connections mm. and they heard that you heard it off your head and that's why you know it made a grown man cry mm. and and i think that's that's partly why a lot of those tracks don't get the music didn't for ages anyway get the musical analysis that no. they deserved and i think the drug culture actually got in the way of a lot of appreciation of music because it was easier to, easier to dismiss the music by journalists or whoever, because there was a drug culture associated. But in a way, I was dealing with almost instant nostalgia because I was getting a brass band to play songs that weren't even 10 years old and also of, of, a, of, of a musical movement that was still, you know, dance music was still happening then, but it was different. Obviously, it changed a lot. But Acid House was still with it, very much within living memory or dancing memory almost. So Things moved so fast between 1988 and... 95 yeah. especially yeah. Uh, in terms of the musical evolution that it's almost impossible to get your head around it now what? i was thinking the other day about that acid as such like the 303 the gurgling mm. acid noises were passe by 91 absolutely it's a bit like what happened with rock music in the 60s when you think of the Beatles in 1963, 64, then you think of what they looked like in 1970 or 69 and how music had grown up and, and evolved, constantly evolved rock music. And then rock music stopped evolving, you could argue, at some point. But dance music has this ability to constantly reinvent itself. And you're right, by mid-90s, people's clubbing experience or dancing experience was often in these massive sheds, these sort of super clubs that had taken over. And I, w I, I went to Cream. I went to a few of them, and they're kind of horrendous experiences, really. <laughs> these sort of mass market, mass events in these spaces. Couldn't believe it. There's no space to dance often, but that was a very quick change. But and you're right. So you could got you probably could get nostalgic about Acid House because it just seemed so long ago. Even though it was literally under ten years, it was just it uh, change had been so quick and so rapid. And yet it was over 20 years from you having the idea to the Saatchi Gallery actually saying, yes, let's have an exhibition of yes. flyers." Yes, it's interesting. I did a series of posters at the time about rock music, but also music culture, of which Acid House was one. And of those posters now, I think four have actually been made into exhibitions by other people. I did about eight, and some have yet to be done, but I think three or four have been done. At least three. So they're all come, they're like prophecies almost. They're all coming to fruition. But but yes, I, I think it's taken, it's a generational thing, isn't it? You start getting wistful at a certain point in your life about your past and your youth. And now people's youth isn't punk. It's actually kind of punks now retiring. You know, they're getting <laughs> to the age where they're retiring, as, as will we in about, you know, whatever. But it's quite interesting to reminisce about something that still seems ultra modern and, and, and contemporary and futuristic. We'll talk about this mainstream acceptance in, in more depth in a bit, I think, because there's, there's a lot happening at the moment um, in terms of sound system and subculture being accepted and absorbed. Before we get any further on these connections between music culture and what you do, I realise I probably didn't do a very full introduction. How, how do you describe what you do? I mean, you know, conceptual artist is the... Yes, it's quite know, dry, that phrase, that term though, isn't it? And it's a bit, not elitistic, but it can put people off. But uh, conceptual artist is, is true, is, is, well, which means an, art, you know, an artist, you work with ideas, but um, I'm an artist, but in a very broad sense. So I muck around a lot, really. A lot of it is mucking around, mischief making, but um, I'm a very broad 
artist, which doesn't mean I'm a musician and I don't paint or draw, but I do a lot of things. I work with musicians. I work with all kinds of people, make films. But it's I, I live in the art world, I would say. Can we, can we do a potted... Uh, history of how you how you got to that point. Yes, you could. I'll try and do it in 30 seconds. I left college in 1988. Uh, I studied art history. I didn't study art. I was unemployed. I, I worked on and off. I was unemployed from, for about eight years on and off, but with other jobs part-time and so on. And all the time I was trying to work out what to do with myself, uh, you know, with my life really, as I think a lot of men do in their 20s. And then I... Um, I knew I liked art. I liked being around it. I took photographs that developed into something else in terms of making things and very modest things, really. But I was always interested in in making things and getting to know people. And living in London, it meant you could get to know people and kind of understand what the art world was and how to get along in it, really. I mean, you have to do that in a way, especially if you don't go to art college. You've got to sort of teach yourself how to operate in this world. And so... Um, I just got to know people and try to, and then worked out what my place was within it. And my big break really was the brass band playing acid house music. Before then, I was just doing little flyers and making little prints and stuff. And then it became, wow, I can work with people. I don't have to work with objects and paper and ink. So that was a very that was a big breakthrough. And during that time, um, I mean, as a teenager and then going through college, what were your music tastes like? Pre-acid house. Well, pre-acid house, they were quite broad. Well, no, they weren't broad. I was really someone who listened to radio and watched Top of the Pops. So for me, it was the charts was what was interesting. But the charts were, were in themselves very broad because there's anything from goth to dance music to hip hop. So you just got a really good mix, basically. But I, I wouldn't say I was, I was a bit of a goth when I was uh, 16 to 18. So it's like, you know, 1984, 1985, which is a good time to be a goth. Got into hip-hop or rap. I don't know. What, I don't even know what you'd call it. I think it's probably rap. And all those people at the time were on DMC, Mantronics. I went to a lot of concerts, went to clubs for that. Then I took a bit of a swerve into indie and dance music via heavy metal. I mean, I just went everywhere, basically. I missed out on the first wave of Acid House. I think I was, re I was just looking somewhere else at the time. And so for those years, until about 1989, 1990, I was looking somewhere else for music so I missed out on that and I've never you know I'd never make out that I was there because I wasn't but I was aware of it you know I, I was at school a fairly similar time and the, the fascination with subcultures as you discover all these people from Yorkshire and the Sisters of Mercy and mm. suddenly and goth and it's like wow this is a whole way of living and then you see Run DMC for the first time yes. and everything from the shoelaces literally upwards is part of how you express yourself and what you yes. are um, was subculture something that you became fascinated with early absolutely and always have been and I probably always will be but yeah it's funny you should mention the Sisters of Mercy that was a band I was very into and Run DMC you know almost at the same time <laughs> it's quite funny really that you can do that but yes I think music culture drove fashion maybe youth fashion more than it does now maybe but then I don't really know what's going on with young people now but it was very important it was almost like all you had, really. And uh, so I was quite, I was a big consumer in terms of just watching telly and listening to music on the radio. It was, it was, it was everything for me. 
1989 was a particularly interesting year and we've we've just had the beginnings of top of the pops 89 being shown on the tv and i'm trying to unpick at the moment how much is nostalgia and how much that actually was an explosive year because acid house which had been bubbling and you know not not in the mainstream no but in 88 in 89 suddenly the british yes. contingent were making it, it start seeing it don't you s express and cold cut yeah, yeah, and yeah. all of those people yeah. were expressing a very british identity through it um hip-hop it was, was amazing it was, it was a lot more pop actually wasn't it or, you know the fact it was on top of the pops meant it almost had to be but i think you're right i think a lot of british dance music at that time was made by people who'd grown up watching Top of the Pops and they wanted to be on it almost. And so they were making music, very friendly music almost, compared to a lot of to American music, which is probably less chart-friendly. And also the British hip-hop in the, the Cookie Crew and Rebel MC and people yeah. like that were coming through at an up-tempo thing because they could were playing at raves. Yeah. And, and suddenly you got this breakbeat hardcore and this, you know, I mean, the breakbeat fusion with the house music and things that would... Go on to other things. Went through the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. You watch those Top of the Pops now and it's so different from like 1987 Top of the Pops, which is really dull. And you just get these very surprising acts come and on. And Sean Ryder. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, you know, it's that was a good year when things went mainstream i suppose i mean i can't really locate myself in 1989 but i you know i was there and so mentally were you kind of stitching together these these connections between these these different things that you'd come up in and then you know as you saw acid house become and rave become a something really knitted into the cultural fabric were, were you kind of were you drawing these charts in your brain as it were i was actually become your artworks yes i was Making connections. You know, the, the 80s were a very authoritarian moment in British life. With a very, you know, the government was very powerful, or felt it was. The police were very powerful. They felt they could do what they liked. And so there was a lot of the imagery that th was thrown up through rave music in terms of police stopping raves and um, being very heavy-handed with these parties. It was very reminiscent of what had been going on in the miners' strike and other industrial disputes and so on. And so it felt felt like dance music, weirdly, was becoming part of a political story in a way that you'd never be able to predict, really. No one could have predicted that. There's that inner sleeve from the Prodigy album, which a lot of people laugh at. Oh, I love that. That painting. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, I love that painting. All my friends had it on their walls. Yeah, the it's amazing. It's, um, of the guy. It's like there's a horrible city on one there's side. A bridge of a, or something, isn't a, it? Yeah, there's a, there's a chasm. And on yes. the other side is this horrible, dirty city. And then there's this this hippie and he's cutting the bridge. The police are on the other side. Yeah. And he's in the beautiful, verdant countryside. Yeah. And I think he's, he's like giving simultaneously the finger, giving he? the finger and cutting the rope on the bridge so that everyone you know it's this image of everyone's gone to the countryside for the rave and discovered color and light and yes friendship and beauty it's actually and a brilliant painting and that should be in a museum somewhere <laughs> because it it really just summed up how people felt at a time it's so naive yes but that sense of a we, we've stepped over something we've gone to something yes. else you can't go back on something if you've experienced something been somewhere and done something and i'm not even talking about drugs now but going into the countryside and dancing or being with a group of people and dancing you can't unforget that and i think that that was a life-changing moment for a lot of people experiencing the countryside in a way they never expected and the, in the film i 
I think that's a really important part. So I, I, I talk about that in the film about the British attitudes to the countryside and our relationship to the countryside. It's quite fraught if you're from a city not really knowing what your place is within the countryside and feeling quite threatened by it, by nature, weirdly. And, and so to go out and socialise in the countryside is a big deal for someone from the cities. And uh, I think it still is. So that was um, definitely something I was very interested by. And strangely, Liam from The Prodigy wrote to me after seeing the film and he was, he was very complimentary about it. And we had a long conversation the film, of course, takes its title from a Prodigy track. It does, yes. Even though the Prodigy don't appear in the film, that's, uh, that's another story. But um, he really liked the film. I think a lot of people who wrote to me after the film, a lot of people were musicians who were part of that scene. And I think they were really glad that I'd looked at it in a way that was a little bit different, but also didn't go on and on about DJs and drugs, really. And it just looked at, took a wider picture, a bigger picture, really, Step back and looked at it within the importance of it. Really, it was it was quite a personal film. I mean, did you did you kind of you know it, did, it didn't pretend to be a uh, definitive history. No, it was. And I think I even say during the film to these young people, this is just an these are just ideas. It, it might not be the truth, but this is how I see it. I wasn't trying to make a def yes an authoritative history of this movement because I don't think there is such a thing, really, when it comes to making films. Um, unless you're making, like, a 12-part documentary about Acid House in Britain or dance culture in the late 80s, early 90s. You would need about 10 hours to do it, frankly. So, um, no, it was just... I was just throwing out ideas, really, and seeing what ones stuck and what ones people reacted to. And I was talking to a group of young people who were between the ages of 16 and 18 who would not necessarily have known about that history of Britain just before they were born, really. For like a t 20, 10, 20 years before they were born, what was going on in the country they were born, born they were, in. They were in a London school. In a, London, a school in North London, very diverse group of young people. A lot of those young people in that film, their parents were not born in Britain. So they wouldn't have, their parents wouldn't have any memory of this because their parents grew up in all over the world. So it wasn't handed down to them necessarily as like folk memory. Um, so I was giving them a bit of British folk memory almost about the 80s, <laughs> good and bad, a lot of it bad actually. And I think their reaction was very raw to it because they, they had no idea about the minor strike, they had no idea about travellers and so on. And So they were quite sh interested and shocked and interested and entertained by it. It was funny, it, was, it really gave me vertigo watching it because... With the mass availability of everything right now, you mm. know, and the, we, we, all our culture is recorded and kept on video and suddenly the past doesn't seem as long ago. You know, the 80s now don't seem as long ago as the 50s did in the 80s. No. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a truism to say that. Yes. Um, because there was less footage and the 50s were in yeah, black and white. Exactly. So it, it, <laughs> they were another time. Absolutely. It's pre-Beatles, which is like the big revolution in Britain. Whereas Popular Acid House is, is kind of, it's always been there and it's kind of, no, it doesn't, but your film made it, re made, made it really clear how far away it was. Yes, especially to them. Exactly that. To us, less so, but to these young people, it's a world before the internet, which for them is just almost unimaginable. And certainly before social media, which again is something that they defines them, whether they want it to or not, or appears to define them. Yes, it's a, a very alien world without the internet or mobile phones or anything like that. For that reason alone, I think, 
Um, the clothes less so. Maybe the dancing, I think, maybe a bit shocked my <laughs> But people danced like that because they weren't being filmed and, and appearing on, you know, on, online the next day or simultaneously or being live streamed. You could behave in a different way. You didn't have to police your behaviour. Going, going back to, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the travellers, mm. you mentioned punk and DIY. It's quite a bit of the sound system culture that you depict in the film and that, that you've talked about was quite acid frazzled and mystical mm. because of that hippie connection. Yes, and the, the travellers, the traveller connection, yeah. Did you at the time kind of think of the mystical qualities of at it all as well? At the time when I was going out, you mean? Yeah. In the, back in the day type yeah. thing. Um, I didn't really do much in the countryside, but I did go to some of those spiral tribe uh, parties or whatever you want to call them, gatherings, but mainly in, in the cities because they did a lot mm. in the cities as well. I didn't do but, much. But in they the... came out of that kind of throbbing gristle, yeah. 23 sort of industrial ideas. Industrial music, but also, yes, all this connections to the earth and sort of an anarchic eco world. I mean, a lot of it, you probably, I went to Glastonbury in the 90s and there's a lot of it going on there as well, this connection. I just think the music was a great way to introduce a, a group, groups of people that would never have been introduced to that lifestyle because they would follow the sound systems, you know, get in their cars and go out for weekends and they'd be exposed to a certain way of life and a certain way of thinking about the world through the music and just being attracted by the music. So it's actually a really great way to entice people into th considering a different way of living. So I'm sure it had a huge effect on some people, not everyone, obviously. I think a lot of people go just for the party, but I'm sure there's a, a quite a, a good percentage cha changes their lives when they are in a situation like that. Absolutely, I, th I think. I mean, you you will talk to a fairly hefty percentage of inner city drum and bass producers who who have uh, a lot of beliefs about aliens and stuff that I swear came from uh, that, <laughs> that mid nineties. Playing raves and and connecting kind of with cyber dogs, uh, sort of all that imagery of of uh, aliens and stuff that was quite heavy, wasn't it? It was yeah. quite big, and uh, yeah, the iconography was quite interesting, wasn't it? It was all around the time of Gaia as well, Gaia theory and Terence McKenna. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And obviously the KLF were throwing in the whole sort of Illuminati um, and stuff. Yeah, it's a quite a good space for three thinking and three thinkers and and people that were were on the fringes of uh, thought uh, to 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 get an audience really I and mean, it's quite interesting free space dance music but was that a part of your conceptual framework as well because this there was a connectivity the the obsession yes, with I connectivity liked before the internet had even kicked in yes. people were talking about global they communication were, yes, that's right they were they think what were the words it was um, there were words for it there's a lot of stuff talk about cyber and there's a lot of talk about technology that was just about to be invented or or was spoken of because it was being researched like 3d cyber virtual reality all these things have been spoken of in the in the early 90s as, as something that was just about to happen and you could still you could do 3d graphics and stuff like that and that was all at raves and on album covers and so on so it was super futuristic on one hand and on the other hand it was quite pagan and pre-christian so you had this mix and they often existed together so it's actually a very good space for for radical ideas to exist dance music and i think it's because a lot of it didn't have any lyrics so you could interpret the music as you wished it wasn't just, they weren't like 
like, traditional rock lyrics about, you know, women or men or relationships, whatever you want to call it. It was like a blank canvas. It was like abstract art. You could see within it whatever you wanted. I, I, I've got a theory that a huge amount of the conversation that was being had at that point has been shut down out of pure embarrassment. I mean, it was it was all of that hyper mystical stuff was more mainstream than people care to admit. I saw recently um, some footage of the shaman. Yes. Who, you know, were the, the kind of the front runners commercially of that kind of mystical rave mm. um, imperative. And they would have Terence McKenna on their records and so on. And they were on, I think it was the smash hits poll winners party mm. performing destination eschaton. Yeah. And the eschaton is like the five dimensional object at the end of the world in Terence McKenna's psychedelic DMT tooting philosophy and this was like pop culture great this though, super pop culture and so many mainstream ravers would find themselves having these conversations about it all went a bit david ike and it all went well that's bit... the thing it can go into sort of you can, it can actually lead you into really bad places as well that's the other thing sort of david ike and then sort of far-right conspiracy theories and then you go on about the illuminati maybe or you go on about sort of bit, Jews running the world and all of that stuff. And, and um, you could probably get quite heavily into the wrong thing. And then, the, you know, add that drugs to that and it would just kind of bend your mind if you're not careful because they're into psychedelics, weren't they? So you could, there are, are paths to take and some of them you probably would not want to end up on because no. they're a bit of a dead end and uh, um, it, it could have, yeah, it could get a bit. Ropey, I think. Is it, I guess it's a combination of that and the pure, like, no one wants to admit that they were wearing fractal trousers or um, seeing the vision of beauty in the eyes of some guy called Dave from Potter's Bar. Yes. That they were having a conversation with for the first and last yeah, time. Yeah, but I think, I, th I think it's good. I think, you know, I think people needed that, actually. After the 80s, which was so grim in a lot of ways... But probably people needed an experience like that to jolt them out of the 80s and just like show them a, few, a different way of living, but also the future, a potential future. So it's good that people probably did take drugs from time to time or it was a drug that was necessary in that environment in that time because it had just been, it had just been like horrible, really quite horrible for a long time. You know, this is a conservative government that had been, you know, by the end of, it would have been 18 years by 1997 of conservative rule. And that, that's not very healthy. If, you know, in any here we respect. are again. <laughs> yes, quite. So but people, it, people really, really underestimate how bleak it was and how swift the change was on high streets, especially where, um, you know, I remember certain cities where in 1988, you wouldn't go on the high street no. at a weekend night. And by what? 1990, yes. everyone was going, woohoo! Well, if you did, you wouldn't go on wearing colourful clothes or a hat or shorts or whatever. I mean, I would get laughed at in, in the 80s for wearing clothes that were a bit odd. They weren't even that odd, really. But then, you know, a year later, two years later, people wearing the same kind of clothes you'd been wearing because they'd had experiences. They were wearing shorts and it was fine for men to wear shorts or have their hair long for example it was okay yes yeah, so i think it did change that it, it made it less tense and also your social life wasn't based around those city center nightclubs which were just magnets for violence for some reason from the door staff down everyone seemed to be wanting to have a fight 
And also there were clubs that didn't let in black kids. So that's why sound systems are so popular because you couldn't get into clubs, regular clubs. In the, I mean, it was almost a joke. I remember in the 80s, it was just a joke that all those big city centre discos, which were run by breweries, would just not let in black kids. And it was just... And gay culture was completely segregated. Yeah, that was totally... Un literally, it was underground, wasn't it? And so um, this music actually allowed everyone to be in the same place and, it's, and it wasn't threatening. It wasn't booze-based for a start. It were, breweries were not running the clubs, so they, it wasn't imperative to sell alcohol. The money was made elsewhere, obviously. I mean, we can't pretend it was a panacea, but no. um, things it did a, change. It was a kick up the arse, I think. Yeah. And uh, it's what was needed in that decade. It was very necessary. On that, going back to this, the, the, the mystical question, mm. um, where does your henge come in? Because I, I mentioned your, well, you, yes. you, you made a bouncy stone henge. I should explain myself. Yeah, I made an inflatable stone henge in 2012. It's called Sacrilege. It was made for a big festival in Glasgow, an art festival, and then it was adopted by the Olympics and it was toured, Stonehenge toured Britain and then it toured London and then it toured the world, which is funny in itself. And I just wanted to make something that was enjoyable. I mean, it's very rave-based in a way. You can imagine that at a rave. would have been amazing at a rave to have an inflatable Stonehenge. The, just... the Bouncy Castle was a big part of the rave experience in the yeah. mid-90s. Yes, it was. But th this one is immense. It's 100 feet across, and it's a, it's a scale model of a replica it's of Stonehenge. An exact size replica. Yeah, it's actually a bit smaller than the exact. You couldn't make it exact size because <laughs> Stonehenge is so big, you can't make inflatable structures that are that tall, that are unsupported. Anyway, I won't go into the technical details, but it's big. It's really big. It's fun. It's meant to be a way of getting in touch with our ancestors and our past, but in a, in a light-hearted way. Uh, it was just meant to be stupid, really, and um, it is. And, but, it, you know, wherever it goes in the world, it, was, it has the same effect on people. It's a great leveller in a lot of ways. But I just thought it was great for us to be able to project, you know, Stonehenge is a, is a mystery and it always will be. So it's, it's great to, it's a great thing to object or structure to play with. And it's, it's a mystery, uh, it, but it represents Britain or England even. And so that's great that we're, we're represented by a, a mystery. It's the most famous structure in the country, really, I would say. And yet it's a total mystery. And I think that's great. We, it, there should be a bit of mystery to ourselves and our identity. I think it did create the, a, a rave vibe. Um, I mean, I've been, like I said, I've been on it twice. Um, once when my kids were toddlers and came to Crystal Palace Park. Yes. And once at actual Stonehenge. Oh, did you and, go then? Yeah. Oh. And um it grown up a bit by then. Yeah. And and so it was really nice to have a have a bounce on Stonehenge as milestones. Literal milestones. Oh, that's great. In their lives. I didn't know they'd been there. Um, because so, yeah, they went to it went to Stonehenge. It wasn't in the site of Stonehenge because that would have been caused like car pile ups on the A three oh three if you can imagine. It was by the visitor centre. It was, so, yes. Yeah. So you just seen two Stonehenges on the horizon, <laughs> one of which is like moving because there's people jumping around on it. But Yes, you, as soon as you get on it, you turn into a kid, whatever age you are, It really. gives you permission. It's yes. that thing of, like, permission to lose the inhibitions. Exactly, and you, look, you, you can't look... You can have no... No one can look good on it. You just, like, you prattle around on it. It's funny. You, you kind of... It's a, a sense of abandon and fun and uh, ridiculousness. 
and in a way raves had that playfulness around them as well i think and and i think it's just it's just you can't be self-conscious and you've you no one has any sort of self um I was going to say self-respect, that's the wrong word, but um, you, you always, everyone will look a bit s- silly on it, and that's good. It's, it's really interesting to see the way people chase that abandon nowadays, because obviously rave culture continues to exist in myriad different forms, in, in spectacular mainstream versions, and mm. you know, down in underground tunnels, um, kind of mutating in its own little ways. Um, but also people do this day raving and sober raving yes you know my missus runs family raves and each of them in a different way has people trying to find and it's so difficult when it's conscious yes and i suppose you're trying to get your kids say no you got this is a great one come and dance with daddy to this song Um, and you know to 808 state or whatever it is or frankie knuckles but but still i think i'm sure kids love going to listen to that music don't they they really do it's full of great and the lights sounds. and bubbles and yeah everything. of course which is something that happened at the time and sort of projections and all sorts i mean it's it was always from what, from what i remember I, I really enjoyed the infantilizing aspect of it which was so different from what clubbing had been like because you know you you look at footage where, you know we begin my film by uh looking at Hitman and Her, which is this program that just went around clubs in the... Well, all around Britain, all these sort of big clubs in city centres and just filmed people dancing to this mid-tempo dance music as it was up to about 1987, 88. And all the men are basically dressed as if they're going to work or wedding reception. The women are dressed differently from work. They're dressed up, but the men are dressed very conservatively and wearing proper shoes and a tie and a shirt, you know. Well, and, epitomized by Pete Waterman presenting yes. it dressed in full yuppie gear. Exactly, in a kind of Armani suit. And that was how you were expected to be at, so it's stress, that's a stressful thing in itself. And all the bouncers are in sort of morning, uh, you know, in dinner jackets and bow ties. And, but, you know, all, all very violent as well with it. So, I mean, this air of uh, respectability by dressing like you were going to work in a bank made it a very unfun experience and so no wonder people drank a lot just to get over that like being at school or something uh so raves where you could just wear whatever you wanted look as stupid as you wanted and dance as freely as you'd ever wanted that's a sort of uh, freedom isn't it maybe it's like being a child again just being allowed to do that yeah, I mean, the fact that people have had dummies and romper yeah. suits, yeah, more yeah. or less. Yeah, I mean, it, that's, that was amazing, all that, um, all the accessories and stuff. And once again, it's one of those phases that's often either written out or looked down on out of embarrassment, especially like serious drum and bass producers will be going, oh, God, remember when they did the Trumpton tune? Yeah, um, and that's you- right, though. A lot of it, that's really interesting. There were so many remixes of children's theme tunes and of adverts charlie is one by yeah. the prodigy yeah that's a road safety ad i think isn't it and there's so many of those it was because- and mix mag at the time did a um a cover feature did the prodigy kill rave because of charlie yeah and they well, we- did there was sesame street trumpton rhubarb and custard yeah. pac-man yeah and that's just the ones we know about i mean people were just i think it's to do with sampling the uh, availability of sampling but also a lot of the people going to raves Literally, were you know they were young. They were like thirteen, 
14, 15. So just a few years previously, they would have been watching those programs. Seri- you know, but, seriously. But the, but the mid-20s to 30 people were already going, do you remember Pac-Man? And yeah. it was having that, like... Well, it's a kind of nostalgia even within the moment. Yeah, a nostalgia for something. But but that's, for me, that's, um, that's something that... I always liked it when people dressed up and behaved and had funny dances and stuff. I always loved that. Almost novelty stuff. I've, I've seen nothing wrong with that. And today, I mean, we, you know, we've talked before about, you know, you feel generally enthused by what you see of music culture. I do. I mean, I'm not a part of I I should be taking part in it, but I'm just distracted by other things. But it seems very healthy to me. And, and, you know, I'm just going on a few demos with young people, climate ones, but also there's been some anti-Boris ones. Music plays a really big part in the anti-Boris ones. Some real kind of Pied Piper use of music. I really like that, and I really think what's, you know, not that I know much about it, it just sounds like an old fart, really, but it seems very healthy and super energetic and, uh, you know, that moment in Glastonbury, there's so many moments in Glastonbury when you saw this English or British music, head, not just headline, but be on big stages with thousands of young people just singing along and it just seemed like a pro- proper breakthrough moment for me, and I, I was uh, very encouraged by it. Like so much today, it's like everything, every single facet of existence feels make or break in, in a lot of ways, that we have these borderline fascist kleptocrats um, in positions of power mm. um, in, in an awful lot of major countries. At the same time, we have multiculturalism like we couldn't have imagined yeah you know even in that that acid house breakthrough time you know that has become realized and normalized yeah it's uh, like to what what is the reality really is it that or is it the political reality and it's just i think the next few years are going to be very interesting aren't they see if terrifying if, if, but yeah but if you know if these these big stars become political make political music or or get involved in campaigns be interesting to see where it goes. Um, I hope they do, really. But you you don't even have to become overtly political. You just have to support a few things. And uh, but I think even better if you're not in the sense that the acid house was not overtly political, but did create became, that forum for people who yes, would never have met to quite. meet. And I mean, it'd be interesting to see if leadership comes from those people because you hear them talk, and they're super articulate, intelligent people. A lot of those artists. And they've come from all different kinds of backgrounds. You know, their parents are not necessarily born in Britain, but they're they're happy to be in Britain as as performers, and so they're part of you know they're part of this country. So, uh, it's it's for me this is one of the you know hopeful points. And in terms of rave culture, I mean, Stormzy, who's the most emblematic, obviously Glastonbury headliner yeah. um, of the kind of generation of artists that you're talking about, um, is so schooled in the lineage of drum and bass and garage and all of the things that led up to grime, which he's then used as his next stepping stone onto whatever he does. And the sense of knowing about the raves and the DJs and the producers and the minutiae of those social networks is, is, is part of what makes him. I didn't know that. Appreciated as a sort of scholar and a gentleman as well as, as a star. I didn't know that he'd, he, he was aware of those things in such detail. He, he, he name-checked, I mean, in, in on his Glastonbury performance, he name-checked 
every single person within the grime scene. He did a, you know, he listed everyone, but also he he'll na he name checks drum and bass records in his lyrics um, by picking MJ Cole, a great garage producer, to do one of his big tracks. He's nodding back to a previous generation. And I spoke to Rebel MC, in fact. Oh, really? Uh, now Congo Natty, who's very roots, radic, drum and bass, meets dub kind of producer and they met at a festival and Stormzy knew who he was, paid his respects, mm. knew not just his history in drum and bass, but earlier in UK hip hop. Well, and You're right, it is a history. And that's, I think we have to look at that as a kind of coherent story, uh, which does make sense, but also is important. It's not just like things happening randomly. It's actually a proper narrative that has to be taken seriously. Like a, like a, cubism or, or you know art forms coming out of other art forms i think that's how we that would be for me a good way of looking at it as something that has a, and also says a lot about the britain and about change in britain through music so like going back to acid house as we were talking about at the beginning it tells a story about the country that isn't a political story it's a cultural one but it still has a massive sort of social impact mm. and i mean you know as as you are looking at the present day and thinking ahead in a, way, in a way that a lot of people don't. If you're thinking towards 2022 already, mm. uh, a lot of people don't really get the chance to think no. two years ahead in a, in a big cultural sense. Do you have any sense of where we're going with this absorption of rave culture, sound system culture, collective subculture into the artistic mainstream? Because, I mean, we've had the Saatchi exhibition. We've got oh, the Museum like of London that. are doing a thing on yes. dub culture. I think it's good it's, they uh, do that, though. I think it's good that a museum, if they do that show well, I think it'd be really great. I'm not against museums putting on shows about popular culture, personally, if they do them, if they're done well. Because I think if these things are important. And, and it's what you do as well. Yes, and also, <laughs> if you put it in a museum, it doesn't mean you, it's dead or you've killed it. It just means it's taken super seriously and seen as an important part of the fabric of history of London, for example, which it is. And so I think museums inevitably will become interested in these things because they are important. And the connection in Britain especially, and probably America, these two countries uh, between popular culture popular music especially or music and history is so close that it's inevitable maybe less so in france or where spain or whatever it's, it's elsewhere but in britain you can tell the story of post-war britain through the music that was made in it in the country and the people that made it so i think it, it we we should take it seriously because we should value it do you think it's leading to people understanding that the actual movements of crowds and and dance floors can be art in its own right. Well, Germany gets it, you know, in Berlin, yes. the techno clubs are considered part of the art establishment mm. just for being techno clubs. Yeah, yes. I don't know. I think people in Britain may be a little bit more shy of the term art, but they know it's important. They might not be able to, I don't know, with, uh, articulate it in that sense. But, you know, we do, there are clubs in British life that we talked about as very special moments socially and musically i don't know about the art thing necessarily i i'd I prefer to stay not seen as art as such but i think they are you know music is an art form and so it's an expression through that art form i'm hedging my bets here as you can tell but but um art is something different 
but take popular music seriously. For me, popular music is the sort of dominant art form of the last quarter, last half of the 20th century, really. It's the most important driver, more so than cinema, um, in terms of change and documenting and forcing change was through music. Have you ever had a yen to kind of do a KLF and turn a concept into try and make a hit record? I mean, you've made I mean, records, I essentially. I do. I have made records. I mean, I've actually was been given a piece of kit of uh, of uh, to make music on, and I'm actually terrified of it because I just don't know what to do with it. Uh, it's like being given a, a sports car and not really knowing how to drive. So I have this thing in a box, and it's very powerful, and I could do anything I want with it musically, and that's actually a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thought. But I, you know, I, I've actually just made a, a, with a with a, a producer and sound technician a, a sort of sixteen minute extended track from a, a minute of an orchestra tuning up. And I've done a, a project for Beethoven's two hundred fiftieth birthday, which is this year, and I've done a film with some children interacting with an orchestra, and also I've just taken like a, a, a minute and a half of the tune up when they all play one note, and I've made this time stretched. Um, reverbed ambient piece of music which we're presenting in a, in a room with lights and maybe a laser to make this sort of chill out room if I can call it that um, for Beethoven but it's not dance music it's the absolute opposite of dance music there's not a single beat in it um, but it's um, something you could lie down and listen to I hope and feel slightly relaxed well I mean the history of the chill out room is a whole other See, that's an interesting history, that, that actually. 90s history that we could talk about. You know, Bill Drummond mm. from the KLF told me that he invented the term chill out. He, he is absolutely insistent that when they released their record, that was the first time it had been used in that term, in that way. And um, he, he, in all seriousness, says that he invented or, or made the term popular or coined it for that thing. I mean, that's one of the great albums of all time. It's um, one of my favourite albums of all time. Yes, but the chill-out room... Another, another record that changed our relationship to the English countryside. It's Absolutely. almost impossible to see a field of sheep without thinking of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just driving with that record on as well through the countryside or through any countryside, basically. Such a clever record and uh, such an amazing record. So, yes, the chill-out room. That has, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's your next book. <laughs> just be actually... It might just be. Because it's not considered enough, isn't it? It was always the smaller room of the two, wasn't it? Or three was the chill-out room. You had the really fast room, which was small. Then you had the mainstream room, as it were. And then you had the chill-out room. For I me. mean, I've had some extraordinary experience. A place like Cool Tan Arts down in Brixton, oh, yeah. the huge squat on yes. um, Cold Harbour Lane. It was was the, the DHSS office where John Major used to sign on. That was yeah. my favourite fact about that one. But yeah, the chill-out room there where they would have cold cut VJing before VJing was a thing. You know, yeah. visual art and... And it was it was multimedia art. It's quite a good meeting place, really, wasn't it? Because it was never as loud, and you could talk to people. And, and you would. Was, and people were super relaxed, and it was lying down, you know, whatever, recovering from whatever. And just you, you might literally find yourself sitting between a, a gangster and a professor of neuroscience. It happened, yeah. you know. I, th and it was a very free-thinking place. You could never really chat on a dance floor, but that actually, you know, there, there is actually something about that. You could probably make a book just people talking about the people they met in chill-out rooms and the conversations that were had. 
if and they can remember. Yes, because there was spoken word in chill out rooms, I remember. That it wasn't just music. It was all sorts of things mixing in and out. I mean, it was, you know, it was quite probably reflective of what was going on in people's minds, you know, if they were on drugs, you know, with all these sort of voices coming in and out and imagery and so on. But um, they're always good places to hang out in. Well, your time has been very much appreciated. Thank you, Joe. Uh, my mind's racing away with um, dreams of chill out rooms, actually. Yeah, it's a good one. Did you ever go to um, Whirly Gig? Yes. Because that was always an interesting... Megatripolis as yes, well. Yes, Megatripolis. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was a bit harder, wasn't it? Whirly Gig was a very soft, loving environment. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember it. World music as well. Big world music thing. And, uh, Loop Guru. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Racial um, records. Monkey and, Pilot. DJ yeah. Monkey Pilot. They're drifting back. Yes. <laughs> drifting yes. back to 1993. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Mega That was a sort of political, sort of political, wasn't it? It was a bit sort of. Well, they used to have lectures in the chill out room. They yeah, used to have. Yeah. Um, it was a little bit e- quite eco. I remember it being quite that kind of road protest was going on at that time. Yes. I think it was sort of feeding into that. Certainly how people looked and the, the music they were listening to was quite similar. So where was that going on? And the sort of, yeah, the sort of Terence McKenna angle. It's all a big mess, really, wasn't it? But it's quite a brilliant mess. Yeah. It was sort of a stew of ideas. And you never picking. And yeah, and you never really knew what you're going to get with your, you put your spoon <laughs> in, and it came up, and it was this, and then it was road protests, and then it was, you know, hallucinogenics, and then it was uh, end of the world, theory, you know, Gaia or whatever. And, uh, 